Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. This is Dr. Simon. These are the stories we live by. And um, I welcome everybody who might be out there in Cyberland to join me on the show. Um, before I even start, uh, I got a letter from somebody in Texas recently who suggested to me that one of the reasons I don't get people calling on the show and interacting is that uh, they listen later. And I know most of my shows, if they're heard, uh, and I never know how many how many minutes of any particular show are, are listened to fully uh, or even partially, um, uh, but uh, they're archived and, and they're downloaded um, later. Uh most on the web and some on iTunes and some on other venues. Uh, but if that's the case, she said that she listens in her car going to work and back, uh, which I guess is a pretty good thing to do. So I'm going to suggest that if anybody wants to communicate with me, I'm going to give them a website. Uh, I have a Gmail website. Uh, I don't want to give my personal website, but a Gmail website that it done professionally uh it's larry Psyduck, l-a-r-r-y uh p-s-y d-o-c and it's at gmail.com so if anybody would like to write uh i'd be delighted to get whatever messages there might be and uh, hold the dialogue that way go back and forth and maybe build up a little bit of uh, daily response to uh, this show, which I do from now and then, uh, and sort of feel that I'm moving into another cul-de-sac. Uh, I don't know if my friend uh, uh, is on the show with me, uh, Jim Morrison, today. I, he's going to uh, overseas for a while, and I don't know if he's gone yet, but that doesn't matter. Uh, I promised, and I will set up a show when he gets back, talking about uh, the uh, medical model and its virtues, and we can discuss that. But tonight, I wanted to follow up our last show. Uh, I don't believe, and I've said this many times, <laughs> that our, at our present rate of uh, social uh, evolution and human evolution, that uh, we can do anything but continue to destroy the planet we live on and continue to destroy each other in uh, response to what I talked about last week, Jim and I, he was very helpful to the discussion, uh, evolutionary pressures, pressures to uh, satisfy our own personal needs, to protect our offspring and those who share our genes, and ultimately to protect our uh, group and defeat other individuals and groups who might compete with us uh, for the passage of our genes and our needs, uh, our personal genes and needs, into the next generation. Um, again, we live on a planet in which... Uh, Sooner or later, you stop eating other creatures on the planet, be they vegetable or um, 
uh, animal and become eaten yourselves, ourselves. Freud, I want to talk a little bit about today because uh, psychoanalysis, I've never become a psychoanalyst. There was something I never went through the training, and I'm glad I didn't because as I've spoken about in the past, psychoanalysis, which could be and is in many ways a wonderful set of stories, and I'll talk about some of them tonight, uh, ended up in many ways to be a struggle between cults, very much in the way that the evolutionary theorists would predict. That is, hostile to any ideas and views uh, that run from to the outgroup, from the outgroup, uh, while trying to uh, impress and uh, get the public to uh, sign on to each particular in-group, whether it was Freud's theory or Horney's theory, which I like very much and we'll discuss tonight, or Sullivan's theory, or eco-psychology, or all of the other theories. I mean, and if you broaden the view, behaviorism as a theory uh, was self self uh, uh, aggrandizing uh, uh, humanism was self aggrandizing uh, in which uh, there was really across these ideas very little meeting of minds. Psychology lays itself out on a horizontal basis which very with very little progress in trying to take ideas from one area to another area and being truly scientific and, and uh, ecumenical, uh, develop these ideas uh, into something that can really help individuals and society at large. But in any event, um, the image that we talked about last week was that our evolutionary push from internal, whether it's morality or needs, uh, is sort of like an elephant. And we, our rational conscious selves, are kind of a weak, uh, weak messenger that leans and one side or the other, but mostly uh, justifies uh, the push of the elephant. The elephant gallops along, which is our evolutionary needs, and history and society keeps unfolding over and over again in terms of one group trying to destroy and dominate another. And uh, this week, particularly awful on the news, the poison gas attacks on, on, uh, in Syria, um, Egypt uh, flirting with democracy, which I'll talk about again tonight uh, as possibly our only way out, uh, in which uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and the dictatorship of, of the military uh, and caught in the middle are uh, what might be called liberals or moderates or cosmopolitan individuals who want neither uh, being caught in the middle, but ultimately turning to the dictators in order to uh, defeat uh, what they see as the dangers from the Muslims, from the Muslim brotherhoods, from from the ultra-right uh, orthodox uh, who, 
even though they were apparently elected democratically, uh, must be defeated. And so you have a country on the verge of civil war, uh, hundreds already killed, and who knows how far and how difficult this struggle will be, um, as ultimately evolutionary theory predicts that the outcome will not be a good one uh, because the pressures of my tribe against your tribe and our tribe against their tribe and this individual against that individual uh, will continue uh, and as the weapons get worse and more and more people join one tribe or another, uh, the devastation uh, gets greater and greater. So, uh, I'm not particularly optimistic about anything happening to change all of this, but in any event, I want to continue and hopefully find a way in which we might think about a way out. Um, I was surprised that Jonathan Haidt never discussed, who was the author of the uh, book on uh, the righteous mind that we discussed last week, uh, never discussed Freud. Because Freud's theory, in many ways, um, really sits very nicely side by side or even on top of the hate book or the, theory, the general theory of evolutionary psychology. Uh, Freud made many mistakes, but ultimately he was one of the great uh, last thinkers of, of uh, humanism and, and the intellectual revolution that took place in the world uh, for, I think, its betterment. Um, and he developed a number of theories. And there was the general theory of psychoanalysis, and then there was the clinical theory. And the th clinical theory, I think, is a disaster. Because what he ultimately decided is that uh, mental illness or, or, or the misery of human beings comes from the repression of sexuality, sexual needs. And while in the Vienna of his time, when there was so much repression of sexuality, there might have been a kernel of, of uh, truth or reality to that theory, ultimately I think it fails. And if Freud was alive today to watch what happens when the ultimate and total uh, destruction of the repression of sexual desire takes place in a society such as ours, um, I think he might have revised the theory that all misery and all neurosis and all psychosis somehow grows out of uh, repressed sexuality. However, uh, his insights as to how able we are as human beings to deny facts uh, or what might be called reality, our ability to construct fantasies that deny anything that we don't want to see as true, and uh, our ability to create more fantasies uh, that construct uh, anything that we want to believe is true uh, is magnificent. And his theory, let me go a little bit into the theory, is a kind of a tripod, the general theory, is a tripod theory of human beings, human cognition, human uh, uh, psychological functioning, uh, in which there's an id, 
And the id, basically our needs, whether you see them as evolutionarily, evolutionary or as biological, or biological through evolution. Uh, Freud was not a big evolutionist. In fact, I'm not going to get into this at all. He was not a Darwinian evolutionist. He was a Lamarckian evolutionist. And for those of you who have an interest, put in Lamarck, L-A-M-A-R-C-K, uh, into your uh, Google and it'll give you a, uh, a brief uh, or a long uh, uh, description of Lamarckian theory. In any event, uh, which is discredited today, largely discredited. Uh, in any event, um, Freud's theory of, of uh, the id as a basic uh, biological push for uh, sex, aggression, the things we want, the basic desires, basic human needs, um, is directed uh, by the ego. And the ego, uh, if you took it from the point of view of last week's evolutionary theory, is the rider on the elephant. And the rider is really a very weak figure, again, just directing and planning out how to best satisfy the needs in the elephant. So the ego is uh, that which um, deals with satisfying needs in reality or ultimately with its defenses, creating fantasies and distortions that protect <clears throat> the individual from trying to accept or recognize non-satisfaction of needs. Now, the third part of the personality is the superego, and the superego really conforms to what we might call our conscience. But the superego is made up of the internalization of the authoritarian and authority rules that are given to us within our tribe and our family and our group uh, at any given time. So the superego really is not more realistic in terms of the values it has, uh, than um, the id. The superego, uh, often, as psychoanalysts of the Freudian ilk put it, hates the id, because the id should not be satisfied. And of course, that's the kind of morality that exists in strict orthodox religions of many kinds, particularly in the Vienna in which Freud lived. Sex had to be repressed. Well, not all sex had to be repressed. Men could have sex uh, with individuals, with women, who were not the Madonna, but basically were the whores. And the whore-Madonna complex is discussed in evolutionary theory. So that the in, the, there was a kind of a wink and a nod. If a man had sex uh, with a fallen woman, it was okay, as long as he didn't get caught. It was really the control of women's sexuality that was really at issue here. Uh, but Freud never really dealt with that. And in fact, we know now that the, the whole Oedipal and, and electric complex that Freud built up in which the, the real core of our neuroses and our psychoses 
is the repression of the desire of the male for his mother and the female for the father, the, the, uh, uh, <coughs> is really reversed. Most of the patients that Freud worked with who were women had in fact been sexually abused. And it wasn't that they were denying sexual desires for their father. They had been damaged by incest and rape and other kinds of abuses that the morality of society, the fantastic morality of society, the, the uh, wished-for image of the morality of society that became the basis of so many superegos, um, uh, that, that was the cause of those real problems. So that part of the sexual theory, uh, now most of us don't believe that Freud consciously was a con man, although there are many who believe in the clinical theory he really was a con man, but certainly as many of the feminist writers who have criticized Freud's theory in, in recent years have suggested it was a blind spot. Because had Freud actually written that these women and their neuroses and psychoses and psychological problems were the result of reality problems and not fantasy, uh, had he been aware that his theory of the Oedipus complex and the Electra complex were his fantasies, he would have been ridden out of town on a rail. He would have been tarred and feathered. He couldn't have been able to become practiced because he would have been a whistleblower. And we know from history that whistleblowers are not cheered on and thanked for bringing to the public uh, and bringing out in the light uh, what powerful people do that is destructive, but in fact are attacked not only attacked by the powerful that are, are uh, illuminated and shown to be what they are, the hypocrites uh, and the most dangerous of people, but by those who have a need, an evolutionary need, if you will, to believe and hold on to the moral dictates of right and wrong that are created by these powerful individuals. Um, it's the woman who's at fault. And even today, in many trials, a woman who was raped will be shown to be uh, the perpetrator, in effect, having uh, overstimulated the rapist in terms of her own dress, her own sexual behavior, and, and uh, ultimately uh, raped by the court. Although that may be changing a little bit, but I'm not sure how much it'll change uh, ever because... <clears throat> Uh, the evolutionary pressures which underlie, or to use Freud's term, the impressions that ultimately f end up forming the superego uh, through the, the needs of the powerful uh, to create a story that frees them from the responsibility of the damage that they do. Uh, and the uh, acceptance of that story by so many of us uh, where our conscience uh, uh, creates uh, values or follows values that really uh, don't protect victims but protect the powerful. Uh, 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 that, that just goes rolls on and, and, and shows us the dangers of, of uh, 
the lack of insight that we might have when we accept and recognize that Freud's cynicism ultimately uh, about the human race and about us as individuals is really quite warranted. So, is there a way out of any of this? What does psychoanalysis talk about? Well, psychoanalysis tries to, as a therapy, on Freudian therapy, to strengthen the ego so that more reality-based decisions can be made. But ultimately, Freud's theory really leaves us uh, in, in the same place that evolutionary theory read, leaves us, which is the rider on the elephant is a very weak figure. Subsequently, subsequently, um, ego psychology emerged and social psychoanalysis emerged. And I want to talk a little bit about that particularly in relation to politics, because these later aspects of psychology try to bring back some notion that human beings, while never rational, as we believe we are, another illusion, the, the illusion, or as hate puts it, the delusion of rationality, um, it's not completely hopeless. Now, while I do believe it's hopeless for us as a species, and I do believe this, I, I, I just, as, as I put on the news or I read the Times every day, uh, it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse, but I still believe, as I used to believe uh, uh, in many ways, that maybe the species can be helped one individual at a time. Because modern psychoanalysis, and modern psychotherapy that comes from it, the psychotherapy that I've talked about many times where the therapy has a quote, because it's not real therapy, it's a form of education that can help individuals, I believe, uh, pursue democratic forms of politics, which, again, I'm going to go into tonight, and um, help more of rational decisions or scientific decisions. And again, I don't believe science is a way to find the truth. What I believe is that, oh, look, somebody's here. Is that, uh, let's see who that is. Hello? Hello? Uh, Larry, it's Jim. Oh, I'm sorry. I was walking around the room and babbling at the same time. <laughs> That's okay. I got and in, I didn't, I got um, in a little... I got in a little late uh, because I misunderstood what time you were going to go. Yeah, on. I changed it tonight. Yeah, well, I yeah, uh, there was something I, I want to watch on television later, so I changed from okay. eight to seven thirty. I I didn't pick that up. So uh, I've been listening for the last uh, few minutes. Anyway, uh, very interested. I don't have a lot to contribute except to suggest uh, that uh, if Freud was a con man, uh, he I think he did a pretty good job conning himself also. Well, that's uh, the point. I, I think that I'd really, I, I really uh, just like to hear what else you have to say. I'm particularly interested about the political aspects that you. Yes, but in any event, to. so let me. I'll go on and babble a little while longer, and then uh, Great. we can see what else happens. Um, but so if we go back and look at what psychoanalysis, and I'm never, I never finished psychoanalytic training. 
Um, I got caught up and I saw the politics that involved the cult or the tribal nature of psychoanalysis. But then again, there was a tribal nature in all of psychology. The behaviorists hated the psychoanalysts who hated the behaviorists. And they all hated the humanists, such as Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow. And rather than create a dialogue, and they all, the clinicians, hated most of all anybody who tried to do experimental verification of any of these ideas. So there was a kind of a tribal war going on, as again, well predicted by evolutionary uh, eye theory and even Freudian theory, that we advance our own ideas and we create whatever fantasies and needs we have uh, and morality that we need to justify the actions that we take to uh, protect and advance both our individual and our tribal uh, uh, needs. In any event, um, the, the uh, psychoanalysis that I became much more interested in was like ego psychology, which suggested, again, on an individual basis, that individuals were capable of developing a kind of, of viewpoint in which they step out of themselves and look back on their own ideas in a way as to the expression I always use now is to own them, to be critical of them. The social psychoanalysts, uh, and I want to talk tonight about Karen Horney, because while I don't think she had the most magnificent and elegant theory, there's so much in Horney's theory that I really enjoy. And when I read her book, uh, The Neurosis uh, of Our Time, a uh, number of really wonderful books, I kind of saw myself uh, as a person and, and, and as somebody who really had to do something about my own behavior on the pages of her book. Um, all of these individuals while they never said it, we're really espousing a kind of a democratic and the newer theories of psychoanalysis, I should add, the interpersonal theories of psychoanalysis, uh, in which it's recognized that when we interact, we create each other. We really don't know where one of us ends and the other one begins. And so uh, there is uh, no doctor-patient but there are two individuals struggling to understand each other and recognize that in the understanding of one another, we transform each other. I love that idea. There's something wonderfully elegant and hopeful in the idea, even if it doesn't uh, uh, lend itself to uh, experimentation and uh, statistical analysis. But it says that we create each other's stories as we interact and tell each other stories. That, that when you hear yourself say a story to somebody who really understands it, you begin to understand it yourself. You begin to own it. So I loved Horneye's theory. Uh, and, and let me talk a little bit about her particular theory. Um, Horneye, first of all, was a, my students always used to read her name as Horny. And she was not. She was not a horny lady. Um, she was born in Vienna. Uh, she became a physician 
in the early part of the 20th century at a time when it was almost impossible for women either to get into medical school or to graduate and become practicing physicians. Uh, she became a psychiatrist, um, and she developed her own sensibilities, and uh, she was married. She had a rather happy married life. She had children. So there was nothing about her uh, as an individual uh, that would suggest that my students were right when they kept saying, oh, she must have been horny. Uh, name is Horni. In any event, uh, there is on 62nd Street, and I think it's 1st Avenue or 2nd Avenue, the Karen Horni Institute, where you can still go and get uh, good, low-income, low-cost psychoanalysis from somebody who was trained more or less into her theories and her ideas um, and had many followers, again, who turned her into a cult figure, which is always sad, particularly for the person who never in her own ideas wanted to be a cult figure. She was very democratic and very liberal in her own ideas and very accepting about the ideas of other people. But basically what her idea was that human beings get themselves into traps. And the, and, and the traps we now know from these last two sessions really are developed through our evolutionary needs. It's the way in which we tend to see the world uh, when the elephant drives uh, left or right uh, in terms of, of how we end up seeing the world and make our decisions. She said, the curse of human beings, of any individual human being, because it was an individual psychology, is to think of themselves as perfect. She said, perfection is the curse. When we can no longer think or recognize that we are making mistakes, that we're causing our own misery. And the idea of causing our own misery is really begins with Freud, who believed we cause our, so much of our own misery by making decisions in which we lack any kind of rational insight into the basis of our making the decisions. Again, his theory about sexuality, uh, I think, was a, was a a serious mistake, but if we broaden it to evolutionary pressures within us, that when we follow the dictates of a conscience that's not ours, but merely the internalization of whatever religious and political leaders we're listening to or grow up with, and when we grow up uh, uh, and we make decisions based upon our individual needs for greed and power and sex and aggression, and we have no insight into any of this. Uh, we cause terrible damage to others and ourselves. So that there has to be some basis uh, for mediating this or changing this. And when we think we're perfect, when we can't accept that we make serious decisions and serious problems without any real insight into uh, how flawed and how puny and how sad our decision-making process is from our own personal, personal, individual point of view, rather than we're carrying on the history of uh, biology or we're carrying on the history of our group, of our tribe, uh, then we're really at the mercy, total mercy of these forces. And again, I don't ever believe that enough human beings will rise up 
and say, I'm going to be a much bigger rider, and the elephant will shrink, and the rational or the scientific, the factual-seeking human being uh, will, will uh, make better decisions. I don't think that's going to happen, um, or at least not in time. But in any event, what Hornite saw was that human beings have certain styles or movements, as she said, to protect themselves from vulnerability as they search out an idealized self as they try to be more perfect. And there were three basic interpersonal tendencies, and that's why her theory is called the social theory of psychoanalysis. One is the theory to dominate others, is to seek power, or as she put it, to move against people. And this is the individual who seeks to control. These are really, in many ways, the politicians, whether they're the politicians of society, whether they're politicians of the family, uh, or the authoritarian, and it's always the authoritarian, uh, a principal, uh, a religious leader who says, I know best, and you have to, and you better listen to me and believe what I say. This is the, the, the moving against. And ultimately, this individual destroys him or herself because in trying to be perfectly in control, they discover it's absolutely impossible. And so the more in control a person tries to be, the more they seek, as she puts it, total mastery over themselves and other people. And this is, by the way, where I saw myself on an intellectual level, because 40 years ago, I had to be the smartest dude in the world. Uh, and, and, and it was destructive, because there were people, uh, colleagues and students, who really did know more than me. But it was so hard to accept I had to be the, no more than them. And so the more you struggle to become an individual who masters everything, who's perfectly masterful, the weaker you become. The more you bring about, said Horni, your worst nightmare. The other tendency she talks about, two other tendencies, is moving towards people. This is the individual, and if you hear this, you could find yourself in this, perhaps, who has to be loved perfectly who has to be completely accepted by everyone. I don't know about you, but I've discovered that you can have a couple of close friends and a couple of people you love, and then you can have a bunch of acquaintances, but everybody is not going to like and love you. This is the individual who gives away everything, who agrees with everyone. This is the individual, and Horn I saw this more as the woman, culturally bound, whether she saw it or not, who finds the masterful man culturally bound as she saw it and says, yes, my dear, yes, my dear, I'm going to listen to you. I have nothing to say. I'll do everything you say as long as you don't reject me. And the more this individual does this, says Horni, the more perfectly agreeable, the more the individual says, expression I'll use, I'll kiss your ass, I'll give you everything I have if you will accept me, the more contemptible they find themselves and the more they find themselves rejected. 
So this is moving towards people. And the third tendency that Horn I saw in people is moving away from people. This is the individual who says, I will reject before I can be rejected. I will let no one hurt me. I will not be wounded anymore. Although they don't say this consciously, because if they did, they would have some very clear insight into their own behavior. This is an individual or individuals who say, I am going to be alone and love it. And the more alone they become, the more miserable and unhappy they become. Because we do, as human beings, need contact. We need affirmation. We need something more than ourselves. And I love her theory for this. And what Horn and I recognized is that unless the individual can look and say, I am going in the wrong direction. I am not powerful. I can't be liked by everybody. I can never be perfectly and purely independent. The more we can accept and own, that's my word, own. I don't think she ever used that particular word. The more we can own the things we do that cause us misery, the more trapped we are. But the more we can do that, the freer we can become. Well, Larry, and I um, want to bring this did, back. I'm sorry. Yes, go ahead, Jim. Uh, uh, did did uh, Karen Horney see these three uh, as being uh, uh, categorical, or were they dimensional? Or no, they were dimensional. Thinking those. Uh-huh. And you can, all uh, of us have all three in our behavior, but one tends to dominate. I see. Because it's a, it's a little hard. Uh, I, I haven't thought about this stuff for well, quite a few years. It's a little hard to think about uh, the, the person who uh, is simultaneously moving toward and moving away from people. Oh, I think, it, I think when you see people, I know you're a therapist. You see it all the time. They try to move towards, and the moment they sense they're going to lose control, they reject. Or the individual who has to control everybody, but wants affirmation, wants good opinion, wants to be loved. The more they sense, they would have to give up control. The husband who has to really let his wife speak out. Or the wife who really has to (laughs) accept that the husband has something to say. The minute they then go back into their normal tendency or their their natural tendency, their protective, uh, 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 defensive tendency, the more uh, that one dominates over the other, but the other is always there. And somebody who has to be loved by everybody wants privacy. Or the individual, I'm sure the president of the United States wants times where he can sit in a room by himself and read a book and not be bothered by the fact that uh, there's a guy standing outside his door. I never knew this until some years ago, that the President of the United States has a guy standing outside every door of every room he's in, including when he's in bed with his wife, who has an attaché case. Yeah, the code box. (laughs) With the code box that could send off thousands of missiles to end the world. Right. Right? Think about that. (laughs) (laughs) And and who wants that responsibility? 
Yeah. Or who takes that responsibility and doesn't get crushed by it. And the only way I can explain it is with some kind of psychoanalytic and evolutionary notion that this becomes invisible to the individual doing it. And it becomes rationalized and justified as, I can do this. I can take on a responsibility in which my action can kill 5 billion people. And I know of no other way out of that but the kind of education that psychoanalysis represents, even though it's not the only kind of education that can get us out of it. Um, so, what do I think on an individual level as a solution to this? Well, certainly one of the ways is if you were lucky enough to be raised in a democratic family in which your conscience was not only uh, an internalization through force, intimidation, and the withdrawal of love that you believe in this version of God or this version of morality, in which even though you had parents who acted as authorities and said to you, uh, this is your opinion and I accept it, although we are your parents and we have to make the final decision, one of the things my wife and I used to say to our kids is, I accept your decision, but as long as we're paying the bills, uh, if we don't agree with your decision, we go with our decision. There needs to be authority in the way in which children learn to become responsible that doesn't crush the individual or allow the child to develop some kind of exaggerated sense of power in which the parents cow down to the child. Because I think that's part of how this stuff emerges uh, or unravels that, that, that there is some kind of a growth process in which there's dialogue and authority, but authority diminishes in the child's life, in the growing individual's life, to the degree that the individual who's developing has a sense of responsibility and can enter into dialogue with other individuals. And I see that as so critically important, Jim, that there is dialogue. And that's what Haight talked about. Although he doesn't tell you, how do you get to there? How does the right and the left develop a dialogue when each side sees themselves as perfectly right in their, in their position? That the other side is nothing and nobody. Uh, it, it's crushable. It's dangerous. Uh, and ha it has to be wiped out. Uh, uh, how does that happen? I think it has partly developmental. Now, the other thing uh, I, I want to talk about before I sort of end this uh, and talk to you um, is when students would come to me and say, I like your ideas, but how do I become more open? I would say you have to really engage other people and you have to have discussion. But one of the things you have to do is read. I believe that, and I used to tell this to my psych major students, you want to become a good psychologist, you have to read. You have to read really great books. You have to read important literature, not only of now, but of the past. Uh, for example, one of the books that turned my mind around in, in wonderful ways was Middlemarch by George Eliot. 
I adored Middlemarch. Did you, I, I read it twice. I finished it, I turned it, it around, and read it the second time. It's yeah. a masterpiece. And what happens is when you read Middlemarch, you enter the mind of the author in a good book that lets you in. It's like a good therapist that lets you in. It's like a good friend that lets you into the conversation where there is a meaningful interaction where your opinion matches or meets the opinion of the individual that you're dealing with. You enter the mind of the author. And I used to say to students, take your psychology course, take your statistics, take the limited courses that you have to take, but ultimately take as much English literature and foreign literature as you possibly can. Because the best psychologists, I believe, and I believe this as I say it, who have ever lived, were really good authors. People who write really, really good fiction, in which, oddly enough, the people that you come to love in the fiction are more real to you than many of the people in your own life who you can actually touch and talk to. Take as much literature, take as much history, sociology. Don't get yourself locked in to the idea that scientific psychology, which most of the time is not very scientific at all, or the clinical model that you and I will talk about, that maybe need to you have to understand to earn a living in the field, has any greater truth than trying to get involved in the mind of other human beings. Meld your mind as, as uh, what was his name, Leonard Nimoy in, in Star Trek, uh, what was his name? The the the, the character of Sorry, the Vulcan. I, 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 don't, I don't think I ever saw a single episode of Star Trek. Oh Trail. God, I loved it. I always loved it. The Vulcan <laughs> mind melt. Uh, um, you know what? My mind is gone. Uh, it'll come to me. But anyway, where there's a, a meeting, a real genuine meeting of minds. I said you have to deal with that kind of material, so that you really can see things. Uh, from another person's perspective, that you can cast aside those things from your childhood that, on the one hand, uh, are uh, authoritarian uh, beliefs that you're terrified to question because you won't be loved or you'll be killed or you'll be cast out. And on the other hand, you can control and understand and own your own individual needs, sexual, aggressive, economic, in our society, particularly economic, where you can question just how much money you really need to be a successful, good human being right. and, and make decisions, factual decisions, like a good scientist that you're supposed to be, in which you're in control, which you can own these evolutionary needs and own some of the historical social pressures that you've been under to live a very different life in which, A, you could be responsible, and B, you could love and create in a way that I think gives life much more meaning than to be part of a mindless tribe or to spend your life trying to get more money and more sex and more things. You ever hear the joke about the guy who's on a bridge and, and uh, the bridge starts to shake and his car, which was a BMW, starts to fall over the edge. 
and he grabs hold of the of the car before it falls, and a cop runs up, and he says, let go of the car, it's only a car. And the guy says, no, it's my bimmer, it's my bimmer. And as he holds on, the car falls and takes his arm with it, and he looks down and screams, oh, my Rolex, my Rolex. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> does, that, does that resonate at all, Jim? <laughs> oh, yes. Is that our culture at present, as it, it continues it to dissolve into meaninglessness? <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, that's my show. I, I, so what do you think? Yeah, I, I think I've talked enough. And, I think it's uh, great. I, 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 always, I look forward to your show every week uh, that it's on, and I always come away having learned something. Now, give me the date that you want to do the show we talked about. Oh, about uh, the, the the DSM uh, five and, and and however else you want to. I have your material right in front of me. I will set it up and we will enjoy ourselves. What date do you want to do that? Um, I don't have a calendar in front of me. Um, so email me. But uh, I will I will email you and. I thought uh, you were going you... to Spain. We are. When we're 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 going next to Tuesday. Oh, great. Have the most wonderful time. Uh, it'll, I wish I, I, wish I, I was going be, with you. Uh, I, uh, listen, I have thought that quite a few times, Larry. <laughs> wish you and I wish I was going along. with you. I mean, it just. Uh, but I can't go anywhere right now. You know, we just came back from New York in uh, yeah. October. I'm going up for my granddaughter's bat mitzvah. Uh, uh, great. <laughs> yeah, which is nice. And we had a wonderful time up in New York. But in any event. Um, so we'll, you'll, you'll give, email me the date, and I'll set it up. Um, right now, again, I feel sort of in a cul-de-sac that this show <clears throat> sort of followed out from the last one, and unless something really nice comes up in my mind to do another show, I'm going to leave it alone for a while, Okay. and uh, we'll see what happens. Okay, so um, what I'll do is um, I will send you an email. Um, I've... Uh, I, I, quite frankly, I just haven't thought too much about content. Uh, well, no, you gave me a whole long thing about, um, you know, what my introduction would be, and what we, you know, uh, why we need the uh, diagnosis, why we need a DSM of one type or another. Right. So I'll set that up, and then okay. I'll send and, it to you. And I'll, I'll get a, I'll get a date to you uh, when I'll be back. And uh, and we'll do it, and we'll have a good time. Well, very good. Now, I want to read one more thing for anybody who's listening to this. Uh, every time you think that politicians, and I always bash politicians because I'm scared of people, um, I had said a number of times on my show that the only politician that I ultimately admired was uh, Gandhi because he refused to become a politician. But uh, there were two politicians in history, in American history, I liked, one is Lincoln, because I thought he was really okay, and the other was Truman. I thought Truman was really a remarkable individual, and this fits. Somebody sent me this uh, about what she says is absolutely true. I can verify all of the, what I'm about to say about Harry Truman. Harry Truman was a different kind of president. He probably made as many or more important decisions regarding our nation's history 
as any of the other 42 presidents preceding him. And one of the reasons, as a Jew, I, I, I'm just indebted, indebted to him, is that while his wife was a vicious anti-Semite, and he was attacked on all sides, he supported Israel's uh, creation as a state. Right. And had he not voted for petition, uh, it never would have happened. And history in the Middle East, for better or for worse, and from my point of view, worse, would never have occurred. However, a measure of his greatness may rest on what he did after he left the White House. The only asset he had when he died was the house he lived in, which was in Independence, Missouri. His wife had inherited the house from her mother and her father, and other than their years in the White House, they lived there their entire lives. When he retired from office in 1952, his income was a U.S. Army pension reported to have been $13,507.72 a year. Congress, noting that he was paying for his stamps and personally licking them, guaranteed him an allowance and later a retroactive pension of $25,000 a year. After President Eisenhower was inaugurated, Harry and Bess drove home to Missouri by themselves. There was no Secret Service following them. When offered a corporate position at large salaries, he declined, stating, You don't want me. You want the office of the president, and that doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the American people, and it is not for sale. How's that? I, 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 I hadn't heard that quote before, but it is, it is stunning. Even uh, later on May 6, 1971, when Congress was preparing to award him a Medal of Honor on his 87th birthday, he refused to accept it, writing, I don't consider I have done anything which should be the reason for any award, congressional or otherwise. As president, he paid for all of his own travel expense, expenses and food. Modern politicians have found a new level of success in cashing in on the presidency, resulting in untold wealth. Today, many in Congress have found a way to become quite wealthy while enjoying the fruits of their offices. Political offices are now for sale. Good old Harry Truman was correct when he observed, my choices in life were either to be a piano player in a whorehouse or a politician. And to tell the truth, there's hardly any difference. <laughs> I love it. Is that fabulous? <laughs> Somebody says that to me, and I say, you know what? I have to read that on the air because it really yeah. goes with the show I talked about today, which yeah. is this is a man who had his own personality and his own thinking and his own independence. Have a great trip, Jim. I'll do that. And uh, I'll talk to you soon, okay? Absolutely. Take care, and good night to everybody. Bye.